If there is anybody who knows what it's like to be different, it's Asif Al-Lahar. It's a story that is familiar to many queer people across the world, especially those who come from backgrounds where queerness is surrounded by stigma. A life marked by moments of realizing that parts of her identity could be used against her. First, her Asian identity. Later, her identities as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. Asifa is Britain's first out Muslim drag queen. She's a proud Pakistani British Muslim transgender disabled artist and performer. However, it's important to understand that Asifa cannot be reduced to her identities. She embraces every part of her, finding the beauty in the intersections of who she is and creating art that validates those who have been misunderstood. Art that gives visibility to the stories that were never meant to fit into any binary. And she's not going anywhere. Asifa Lahore is here to stay. So let's talk colonialism. You are Pakistani British in post-colonial times and I'm sure its aftermath must affect various parts of your life and you've talked about this um in various talks that you've had and you've spoken about how you felt when you were in Pakistan and how you were received by your extended family in Pakistan. You were British kid and you stated that you felt as though centuries of old colonial dominance were being subconsciously projected onto you this is your quote can you elaborate on what those projections were and why did it bother you so much oh it definitely bothered me so obviously in the summer holidays i would go to pakistan literally for a month or two months every year and i enjoyed it i loved every second of it but the only things i hated about the holidays in pakistan were me my sister my older brother we were treated with the utmost respect and the utmost we were sort of like cotton wooled everywhere we went and we were known as the british kids we were never allowed to sort of i don't know weird things like you know pakistani kids around our ages would be playing on the streets playing in the verandas we were never allowed to do that and that wasn't by our parents it was mm. actually by my aunt my uncles you know local neighborhood uh, neighbors kids etc because it was seen as we couldn't do that because it would look bad on everyone else if the british kids were playing out in the streets with with the locals it it was a really that's sort of like the first time i realized my britishness uh in pakistan and i absolutely hated it because i just wanted to be like the other kids in pakistan i wanted to play in the streets i wanted to you know ride on the scooters i basically like spent a lot of time in pakistan in the 1990s hmm. um and although it was a very turbulent time for pakistan um politically especially in karachi for example yeah karachi was bad. i absolutely wanted to immerse myself like by you know riding on scooters and motorbikes in in the traffic playing out in the streets with the local kids going out to the bazaars 
you know, having a bun kebab in, in the streets rather than going to like really fancy posh restaurants that I could easily go to in, in London, for example. Mm. So, yeah, my Britishness definitely got in the way. So it's interesting, Asifa, because when we go back to Pakistan and we try to go back every year and I take my kids, I am paranoid. I just don't let them outside as much because I, in my mind, they don't know how to navigate those spaces. And I think that's something that I'm always conscious of. And even in terms of food, I'm like, oh, my God, they'll get sick if they eat this or that. So it's mostly my understanding of what or my fears of what may happen to my kids but on the contrary everybody in Pakistan especially their uncles and aunts and everyone is like just go out and play and do whatever but again the difference is my kids come from America and you're you went from Britain so I don't know if that's the reason why um, treatment was different or maybe it's just your family that treated you that particular way. I think maybe it was my family. I mean, my mom, my mom and dad had no qualms about us, you know, playing out in the streets or eating street food or, you know, um, relatives taking us on, on motorbikes or scooters in dangerous traffic. My mom and dad actually wanted us to experience that. But I think it was just literally my, you know, the extended families, my mum's brothers and sisters, my dad's brothers and sisters, they really cotton wooled us. And mm. I think, you know, now I'm a mature 30 something year old. I can understand why, yeah. um, you know, uh, in, especially in the 90s, I think it was very uh, volatile politically, Pakistan. But even now, you know, I see I recently went back. It, let me think last year 2019 I went back mm. and one of my cousins who's you know he's got his own family he's in his 40s and I stayed with him and he would he would just like you know you can't go out unescorted um really? you know you're now living as as female as a trans female so you can't go out escorted you know I've got to take you everywhere and even though I was very adamant I said to my cousin his name's Imran I said look Imran, I can take an Uber, like I can just take an Uber <laughs> right now from the door and go down to, you know, uh, Tariq Road or a fancy bazaar in the, in, the, in the town area. But he was like, no, you can't go on your own. It's too dangerous. Mm. And, you know, me being the independent woman that I am, I just defied all... I just divide. I just kind of went against his wishes I love it. and caused a bit of, you know, uh, disharmony in his house uh, <laughs> between him and I, where I would just break the rules. But that I think that it, maybe it's something to do specifically with my family. Mm. But yeah, there is this notion that Pakistan is dangerous for British folk. Okay, this part is... Um fascinating to me in some ways because I feel like Pakistanis are still going through their post-colonial hangover. I think they revere British and Americans and Western um, mm -hmm. cultures. So yeah, to me, I some, agree with you. yeah, so sometimes it surprises me when people say that because I think when anybody from Britain or America goes to Pakistan, they are treated with utmost respect and love yeah. and graciousness. Um, so that, that part surprises me. But going back to what I said initially, 
I am scared because I think they don't know the place. And I think also the way I grew up in Pakistan, very protected. So I feel like I try to project that onto my kids. Um, maybe that's why I'm so conscious of where they go. But otherwise, I would be comfortable sending them wherever. Yes. I mean, you know, again, I think it's family per family. Yeah. But I mean... So I started my transition three years ago from mm. male to female mm. and living as female and going to Pakistan for the first time in, to, in 2018, two years ago, I was really, really, really scared. Um, more so to do with my, you know, transsexuality than anything else. But very quickly, I became very comfortable because... I'm I'm lucky as a trans woman that I have passing privilege. Uh, I, you know, I would go out and about and people would just assume that I was cisgendered in mm. Pakistan, just the same way that I live my life in Britain. But I think with that, I mean, the experience with my cousin and other family members came this idea of, you know, if you are now living um, as female, you have to be protected. You can't go out there on your own. You can't, you know... You can't have the freedoms, shall we say, that I have in, in living in London. Mm. But again, I defied that. I took um, taxis on my own. I took Ubers on my own. I went shopping on my own. Um, later on, I even took on another visit to Pakistan in 2019. I actually took another um, white gay friend of mine. Mm. And, um, you know, I'd go out and about in the bazaars, in the streets with him. And I felt... Free, because between the ages of 11 and 14, I actually lived in Pakistan. I oh, lived you did? a couple of years in Karachi and one year in Lahore. And it always takes me back to that part of my life because I felt a sense of freedom in Pakistan that I never felt in London, uh, which is really weird because I, you know, going to school from one part of the city of Karachi to the other part, um, it's very much a, a city of extremes. Yeah. You know, on one part, you've got um, the elite and the privileged. And on the other part, you've got, um, you know, the middle class and, and the poor. And um, going from like a middle class area via public transport to school every day in the main city elite area mm. was an adventure for me. And I felt absolutely free in, in Karachi like I, I've never felt before. So going back as a trans woman... For me, many years later, uh, as a trans woman, I wanted to get that sense of freedom again. Mm. And I, I found that freedom, I guess, on my own, um, you know, going out and about and um, in a way reliving those years as a teenager. Asif, I, I want to talk about something that's happening in Pakistan right now. In some instances, Pakistan gets more things right on trans rights mm. than the US and in your case perhaps the UK because Pakistan recently passed this law called the Transgender Persons Protection of Rights Act which yeah. allows trans people to choose their gender. It basically lays out their rights to inheritance um, in accordance with their chosen gender. What are your thoughts on that and how do you compare that to trans rights in the UK? So I've always felt that, you know, the East, especially South Asia, has been so much ahead of the game when it comes to the transgender 
community. You know, it still has a long way to go when yeah. it comes to lesbian, gay and bisexual communities. But in terms of transgender, I think South Asia on the whole has got it for, for centuries and decades. And it does hark back to colonialism when, you know, the British took over India um, mm. and colonialized it. They did not know what to do with these third gender identifying people that the Mughal Empire held with such respect. The Mughal kings and queens had these um, third gender performers um, very much in their courts. And, you know, even in post-colonial Pakistan and India, mm. uh, third gender communities are very visible out there. Uh, they may be, you know, street beggars, they may be cleaners, but the notion of being a transgender person or, you know, a Kusra or a Hijra, as they're commonly known. Mm. It's very much evident. I mean, when I was living in Pakistan in my teenage years, I would see so many trans people and I identified with them straight away. Mm. But whenever I would come back to Britain, it'd be total invisibility of trans people. And it's only when I began getting bullied at school in Britain for being gay that I assumed that gay would be in trans in, in Pakistan. And it's only when I grew up that I realized that, oh God, I'm, I'm not a gay man. I'm definitely a transgender person and a trans woman. So I think, you know, with the rise of social media, with the rise of the internet, it's really allowed communities to come together in a way like never before. And the transgender community in Pakistan in particular has really used the internet not only to kind of accumulate its numbers and and raise solidarity but it's also used it to really champion the government of Pakistan and the bill that you mentioned you know yes it it came into force I believe in 2018 or 2019 yeah um, but before that there was an actual bill in 2009 which was passed by the Supreme Court which allowed trans people the right to actually have an identity card and a Pakistani passport mm. in the gender that they chose, whether it be male, female, or third gender, mm. which I find extremely amazing because, you know, in the West, for example, we're still struggling with transgender identities. I mean, the British um, conservative government uh, right now, actually just two weeks ago, issued a a bill that's going to be debated into parliament for actually, which will probably take back uh, trans rights a few decades because Ooh, wow. they, they don't want trans people self-identifying as male or female. Um, and they want to protect, you know, certain same-sex spaces. So, yeah, I think the West really is struggling with third gender identities, despite Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, it being legal right now. and it getting those identities uh, for decades. And that doesn't come without its own challenges. I mean, you know, socially transgender people in South Asia may be some of the lowest class people. Exactly. But at least they are, have their rights and are acknowledged in the constitutions. And I hope th those rights are implemented as well and realized because on paper, yes, the law looks great, but if it isn't implemented properly, then we have a problem. And I think there's a lot more work to be done, even in Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, all those places. Yes. Asifa, how much of your work 
is consciously decolonizing gender identity and queerness as a whole. Everything I do, I'll be honest, I, there is a conscious element to it, but there's also an unconscious element to it. Mm. So at the heart of um, me being a public figure, I started life as Britain's first out Muslim drag queen. When I identified as a gay man, I performed in drag and a lot of my parodies or a lot of my show's contents mm. would be around me being a British Pakistani queer person mm. um and when i started doing that at the start of the last decade I, I started about nine years ago i was very much the only public figure from you know british pakistani queer background that was actually being public and speaking about the issues that affected me mm. and obviously here i am talking about myself and my experiences but i'm also unknowingly actually talking about decolonization, talking about, you know, British Pakistani issues in the diaspora without even realizing it, even if it is via comedy, via drag. Mm. Um, in the conscious world, I think, you know, fast forward to 2020, there, there are now like a plethora of public British Pakistani queer people that are out that are you know huge social media followings mm. influencers and you know I think for the past decade I've just been involved in sort of amplifying and raising voices of people that haven't had the privileges that I've had with the media of mm. you know having major national spotlights on me and now that the community is up to a level where it is able to not only be you know, in solidarity, but also be able to fight. And I think, you know, current things like the transgender bill going through the British Parliament at the, at the moment, also the global issue of Black Lives Matter, and also the question, especially in the UK, yes, Black Lives Matter, and at the same time, in the UK, the South Asian community is the largest ethnic minority and it also faces racism as well. Mm. Uh, we might not, for example, be as in solidarity, say, uh, as, as the black community are at really raising its voice around the issue. But actually, we are also impacted drastically by, by racism uh, uh, because of our, you know, colonization past. Right. And then, you know, you also have especially in the UK, I don't know what it's like in, the, in America, but in the UK, because of um, the coronavirus pandemic, the South Asian community here is most likely to die mm. of coronavirus uh, in the UK. Um, and statistics are also showing that the South Asian community is going to be disproportionately financially affected by the coronavirus pandemic um, and it's really going to, in particular, hit British curry houses uh, very hard because not only are they not able to open, but when they are able to open, will, you know, will they be able to sustain the financial stability that they had before the pandemic? And statistics are showing that they probably will be worst hit. Hmm. So, yes, there's, you know, the, I guess in terms of my work, both as a performer and a public figure, I have both unconscious and conscious fights with decolonization and really raising the voices of British Pakistanis and British South Asians.
And I'm so glad that you're doing that, Asifa. And you have this trailblazer-like role, being the first Muslim trans person. You have educated so many on the realities of being trans, Muslim, Asian. But that means that you are putting so much of yourself out there, right? You're sharing your deeply personal experiences that are brought up during conversations in a very public way. How does that make you feel? And are there times when you just want to keep some things to yourself? Oh, of course. I mean, <laughs> Saudi, you can really uh, relate to this. As a Pakistani person, we're really taught to, in many ways, subconsciously, we're taught to not give all of ourselves over exactly. to the public eye. You know, I, I still remember my mom, um, you know, telling me not to always tell the truth about what's happening within the family yeah. to other family, extended <laughs> family members or, you know, embellishing certain truths. <laughs> and I think that really is part of, you know, Pakistani and South Asian culture where we're not always speaking 100% of the truth. Mm. We're always not, you know, if we are putting ourselves in the public eye, it's always the best part of ourselves. Mm. And that's why I think Pakistanis do social media so very well. Because social media is part of, is like that. You just put the best things about yourself mm. out rather than, you know, the depressing things or the not so trendy things, shall we say. <laughs> um, of course, there are times when, you know, you don't want to be in the public eye. You don't want to always talk about the hardships or, you know, you always don't want to be the resilient one or you don't want to be the one fighting all the time or explaining yourself uh, to different people, whether it be to people from within your own Pakistani community, within your own queer community, within, you know, the British community. There are points where, Sadia, I get tired. Yeah, I'm sure, <laughs> I get yeah. exhausted mentally. And, I, you know, self-care is very much part of of um, my work and I think coming from such different identities and minorities it's really important for us all to take self-care really importantly especially in such climates but whenever I do put myself in the public eye and talk about my private experiences I try and be as authentic as I can because mm. coming from you know the Pakistani environment where shall we say, I am taught not to be 100% authentic. Mm. Actually, by doing that, I'm breaking that mold. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, breaking down those barriers. Um, and by being 100% authentic, I'm also speaking the truth of British Pakistanis, of Pakistanis, of queer people, of thousands and thousands, if not millions of people around the world that go through the same experiences that I go through and may see a connection or a side of me within themselves. So, Sadia, for you, for example, you're American-Pakistani. I'm a British-Pakistani trans person. We're obviously two very different people, but mm. I know I can see something similar or mirrored in yeah. your story and you see the same in mine. We're very much different chapters of the same book yeah. and you know you're for example you're not queer I, I'm assuming you're not queer I am however I'm sure in my story there are elements that you see within yourself um, experiences that land with you absolutely um, so 
I guess to answer your question, I try and be as authentic as I can and also keeping safety in 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 um in place as well. You know, I have to think about family, I have to think about my own f- safety as well. Mm. So, yeah, that's those are I guess the barriers of of being 100% authentic all the time. if I want to go back a few years to when you first came out as gay and I watched one of your YouTube um, talks, um, The Boy Behind the Burqa, which yes. I was so impressed with and I enjoyed it thoroughly. And what I loved about that talk was the way you communicated your different identities and you accepted them unapologetically which I am so grateful for because there are very few people out there who can do that and you talked about something that really stuck with me which was that um, when you came out as gay um, you were told to marry your cousin in Pakistan Um, you Mm. initially agreed to marry but then you broke off that engagement Kudos to you for doing that. I am so proud of you because not Thank everybody you. has the courage to do that. And if you don't mind my asking this, what was going through your mind at the time when you decided to break off that engagement? I mean, it took me a good six months to break off that engagement mm. because when I entered that engagement, I was just depressed. Looking back now, I can safely say I entered a very dark depression um, at that time because, you know, when you have family pressure, when you have community pressure, when you have your imam telling you, you know, that this is this is the way forward yeah. and you can't see a future for yourself any other way, I agreed to it, but I fell very much into a dark depression and... It was only via a university lecturer who pulled me aside one day and said, you know, you're handing in work that is really below your standard. What's wrong? And when I told him everything that was going on at home, he just put me in touch with LGBT charities in central London. And I was 23-ish and it was the first time in my life I met other queer South Asians, queer Pakistanis, queer Muslims, because up until that point, Sadia, I firmly believed I was the only one. Mm. And I would obviously hear their stories about, you know, marriages of conveniences or lavender marriages or people that were, you know, married to their cousins, but were living double lives Mm. and, you know, the mental health issues that went with that. And then on the other side, you had, you know, queer Pakistanis uh, and queer South Asians that were very out and proud. And I think for me, I was just like, I don't think I can live that life. Going to these, you know, support groups and meeting other people, it was kind of like I was transported 20, 30 years in the future. Mm. And I could either decide to go one route or another route. And so I kind of mustered up the courage inside And I went back to my mom and dad and I said, no, I don't want to marry her. I'm definitely gay. Mm. Um, And that's it. Um, And obviously, I mean, this was my Khala's daughter, my mom's sister's daughter. So it was 
a massive, massive issue within the family. And, you know, my I just kind of left my mom and dad to deal with it. It stopped me going to Pakistan for a good five years at the time because I was just scared mm. to go. And also my cousin, she was my best friend. I mean, she was someone who I played with, in, um, you know, in Pakistan every time I'd go in the summer holidays or, you know, whenever I'd stay there for long periods. My cousins were like my best friends. Right. And I felt I'd let the family down, but in particular, I'd felt I'd let her down. And it was difficult. It was a very difficult time. But when I think about it, Asifa, I think you really did what was best, not just for you, but for her. I oh, feel God, like yes. what you did was so selfless because it's easy for people. I shouldn't say easy, I'm judging, but probably it would have been more convenient to give in, right? And do that and then maybe lead a double life. But I think what you did is more selfless and better for your cousin in the long run, right? Oh, most definitely. Most, most definitely. And, you know, I mean, female rights in, in Pakistan and much of the Muslim world is another podcast in itself. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, going back to Pakistan, you know, after this whole facade and actually my cousin now, who I was meant to marry, has married. She has three lovely kids. She's really happy with a loving husband. And I remember when I transitioned and, you know, she met me for the first time as female. Yeah. She was like, thank you for not marrying me. Yeah. I mean, I love you exactly the same as I loved you as a cousin when we were younger. And that will never change. Mm. But thank you for, for doing that uh, because I really love my life and I love my husband and my kids. And, you know, every time I go to Pakistan, she welcomes me with with open arms and I enjoy, you know, taking gifts to her kids. And, you know, I feel like we've reestablished our friendship that we had in our childhood. And, you know, it's, it's been a long journey with my family, uh, with my immediate family and extended family. Mm. And, you know, there are some parts of my family that don't agree with my transgenderism. They don't agree with the way, you know, I live my life, for example, But at the same time, there is, you know, if 80% of the family are accepting, there's 20% that aren't. But I'm, I can put my hand on my heart and say that I think 100% of the family has a quiet respect for me mm. in the sense that not only am I living my life authentically, I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm looking after my parents. My parents are, are uh, in their elder years now. Mm. Um, I'm very much like the, the sole breadwinner of the household. Mm. Um, and for me, I think you alluded to, you know, me not being ashamed of all my identities. And I'm not, you know, and all my identities are very strong within me. And, you know, I always get this all the time. How can you be queer and Muslim? And for me, the link is my Pakistaniness. Right. I think for me, if I were to leave Islam, I would have to leave my Pakistaniness behind. And <laughs> for me, my Desiness, my Pakistaniness is really important because, you know, I think the first language I ever spoke was probably Urdu or Punjabi. And before I learned English, and that's living in, in being born and living in, in London. Oh so, my God, I love that. Um, yeah, I've, I, I'm very proud of all my identities and uh, I don't pick or choose them. I let them all hang out, good, bad, ugly. 
So as if I want to talk about something else, I want to talk about cis people and how they talk about trans issues, specifically trans women of color. We see there's a lot of um, insinuated helplessness surrounding their narratives, right? There seems to be an emphasis on how they are victimized by society. On the one hand, yes, that is true. And that is extremely important to highlight. Trans women, especially trans women of color, are bigger targets of hate crimes. However, the way I see it, I feel like it's a slippery slope. Because if the only way we, meaning cis people, can connect to trans women is by assigning a victim role onto them, what does it say about us? Like, I have an issue with that. And I am asking your opinion on it because I see you as an empowered trans woman. What What are your thoughts on it? I can definitely see your point of view. I mean, yes, the reality is that, you know, the average age of a trans woman of color is 35, which in itself is horrendous um you know um globally i think one of the largest hate crimes is is the murder of trans women of color mm. um and at the same time i think for me there is definitely an affinity between women cyst women of color and trans women of color mm. i think you know we not only receive racism for being women of color, there's a massive amount of sexism, both yeah. from within our communities and also externally as well. And then we're also exoticized mm. uh, for many different reasons by, you know, uh, by the white uh, community. And battling all these things, it really does lead to... For me, I think, you know, cis women of color and trans women of color do have a homogeny there. They do have a, a linked experience of, of both sexism, exoticism and ageism in many ways. Mm. And what I would say is I am a trans woman who is empowered. I definitely do not. I definitely don't see myself as a victim. I could have easily taken that route, but I have fought for the life I have. I am also in a minority in the sense that I understand my privilege. Mm. I understand that, you know, to have the life I have now, I've had to work really hard and I've, I've had to really empower myself. And, you know, many women may not have those opportunities that I have had or, you know, may not have the courage to grasp those uh, mm. opportunities. So if you're asking me personally, I would not like to see trans women of color mm. painted with the victim brush and on the same scale as well i don't want to see cisgendered women um painted with with the same brush as well um because i don't see why just because we are women of color that we have to be victims uh it's you know the, i don't i see it as a positive i'm very glad to be of color to be honest yeah um yeah, so I hope that sort of answers your yeah, question. Yeah, and, and I feel like I've always struggled with this Muslim woman identity in, in Western societies where most Muslim women are portrayed as victims and oppressed. It feeds into this white savior narrative, right? Somebody has to come yeah. and save us. Uh, so that's why I'm like, I on the one hand, as I said, I do recognize my privilege, your privilege, I do recognize 
what's happening with women of color, women, trans women of color. But at the same time, we can be empowered through our struggles. And that's yes. something that we should focus on. Yes. I've never, again, I've never seen my struggles as, you know, uh, I don't think my struggles have made me a victim. In fact, they've made me who I am and they're part of my journey. And I'm very proud of those struggles. I'm glad I would never want to change my life for an easier ride, as it were. Um, and, you know, it's made me the woman I am. It's made me, it's made me the person I am mm. today. And, yeah, I, I, I would not want to see all trans women or all uh, cisgendered women of color painted with that uh, victim brush because I don't think we are victims. So Asifa, how would you describe, now I'm pivoting, how would you describe yourself as an artist and a performer? Um, how would I describe myself? Interesting. I'll be honest with you, I've kind of fallen into drag by total accident. Um, hmm. As a teenager in Pakistan and also in the UK, I always wanted to go into acting. And obviously coming from a Pakistani background and things have changed now, but uh, with the TikTok generation. But back then, I think my mom and dad preferred if I were to be a lawyer or a doctor rather than being an actor or a, you know, dancer. So um, I auditioned for the Brit School, which is a really prestigious drama school in London. Mm. And, you know, Adele... Leona Lewis, like so many people have attended it. And um, I got a place there for two years to do my A-levels and to, you know, be trained in singing, acting and dancing. And I really put my foot down at the time. And I said, no, I'm going to prove you all wrong. I'm going to go and get a career. Um, and so I went to this performing arts school hmm. and I realized if I were to be a public figure and you know, please note that this was in the years before social media, I would have to be um, probably out about who I was. And I don't think I was ready then to come out fully. Mm. Um, so I left that and went to university and did something totally different. And obviously, in my early 20s, I came out mm. uh, to my parents. So once I had kind of dealt with the issues of coming out, I kind of went back to performing and the way I did that was via drag. I entered a drag competition and it was that drag competition actually, it was a national drag competition called Drag Idol UK hmm. and it gave me the title of Britain's first out Muslim drag queen um, because I was the first Muslim and the first South Asian person to enter that competition. And I began like getting gigs up and down the country and I I used the powers of YouTube to, to put up music videos and parts of my show. And I think mum and dad didn't know about it, um, <laughs> but they when I finally decided to do like media and do stuff with the BBC and I think Ami, my mum, she saw an interview with me on Geo News on um, Geo is a Pakistani news yeah. channel and she called me up and she said, you know, Tum to bhoot bare celebrity ho. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, okay, thank you Ami. So, um, you know, um, 
I am Britain's first out Muslim drag queen. Uh, that's still been the case even after I've transitioned. Mm. Um, it's how I make, um, it's how I pay the bills. Uh, I absolutely love it because it allows me not only to, you know, speak to people like yourself and speak about important issues that are really important to me, mm. but it also allows me to express myself through performance. And again, all my identities really do intertwine in my performances because I can only really perform from my own experiences. And obviously those experiences do, you know, do move uh, audiences or audiences see themselves in the songs or parts of, of the songs or the performances. But I'm just glad that it's allowed me not only to have a career, um, but also to, you know, push boundaries in politics, uh, within communities. And it's also allowed me to, you know, enter spaces that I never thought I would. So, for example, you know, doing lost lectures on YouTube, doing TED Talks, speaking at the Oxford Union, taking part in debates at the Cambridge Union. So, um, you know, these things I could never have imagined doing as myself. So I'm really happy and, and really proud of of the career that I have. Absolutely. Asifa, what is next for you? Is there something that you are planning to do? Are there any projects in the pipelines that you want to share with us? Yes. So um, I'm really actually excited at the moment because it's very interesting times. Um, obviously, last year, India decriminalized homosexuality, finally. And um, I'm actually going to be starring um, in, it's a small role, but I'm very happy to be starring in a Bollywood film called Leila Manju. Oh, wow. Uh, it's coming out later in the year. A release date hasn't been finalized yet, but it's starring some very big Bollywood names. One in particular is a very, you know, um, heavyweight Bollywood actor. I can't reveal too much about it, uh, but know that that film is based around the drag community. Um, and uh, I'm really, really lucky to be involved in that. And I'm really looking forward to it being released. Uh, we have to film another leg of it in, in August of this year but it's more than likely going to be out at the end of the year. So I'm looking forward to that. That's so exciting. Oh, my God. I'm just going to look it up and see, you know, who else is in the movie. Oh, you can. You can look <laughs> it up and whatever, but I'm just obviously not allowed to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> this was wonderful, Asifa. I had so much fun talking to you. And if people wanted to find more about you, is there a website they can go to? Of course, you can check out my website, asifalahore.co.uk, or you can find me on all my social medias at Asifa Lahore. By the way, I wanted to ask you why Lahore? What, what's the significance behind Lahore? Um, so obviously, um, I wanted a really good catchy drag name that encompassed all my identities. So my, I was born with the name Asif. So um, Asifa just is the female version right. of Asif. And um, 
My dad um, was born in Lahore, is Punjabi, and Lahore just has amazing connotations. It's a massive, like, sexual innuendo, but at the same time, it also represents my desiness, my Pakistaniness. And, you know, when you're performing to majority white queer audiences, I like to let my ethnicity hang out. I like to let people question, oh, what does that mean? <laughs> um, because it just opens up a conversation. Yeah. So, yeah, a few reasons why I chose Lahore. I love it, Asifa. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you.